Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back to my show, Patriots the Core Podcast. I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope I can provide you with something that's uplifting, especially during this crazy quarantine time. Hopefully, we're going to start trying to get back out in public and getting somewhat back to normal. I think that will take quite a while, though. But today is episode number 73, and my guest is Linda Ambard. And Linda was unfortunately not the first person to find out about her husband's death in Afghanistan. She was notified, but it was after her co-workers knew, most of her children knew. In fact, at least one of her children found out via social media. Uh, Linda shares today why her late husband immigrated to the United States, learned English along with seven other languages, and then chose to join the Air Force. Her notification and details of his death were far from effective, but we know who his killer was. It was an insider, someone he and his teammates trusted. And since she's been on a mission to help the Air Force know where to improve and to help military spouses understand how to avoid some of the challenges she faced in the days following his death, such as her checking account getting frozen. Linda still doesn't have clear answers, but she's forgiven Phil's killer, who killed a total of nine Americans that day. Uh, one of them was a contractor and eight of them were act- and eight were active duty. And she still has hope for the Afghan people. We, we definitely talk about this. Uh, since his death, she has run 55 marathons. And she's run almost 200. She's at 199 now, I believe. And she's been on, ran them on six continents. And her seventh continent, she'll check off the box next year in 2021 when she runs in Antarctica. This has been something that's really helped her heal is running. She's a champion of getting outside, running, and relying on your faith to get through challenges. And she's definitely a woman of action and change. And it's great having her on the show. I met her in early March at the Air Force's Survivor Advocacy Council meeting. And I was really just saddened and blown away at the things she shared with us in that meeting. You can learn more about her by visiting the links in the show notes. She's got a book, Courageously Alive. Uh, there's some art, excellent articles out there on what happened with the circumstances surrounding her husband's death and all the other Americans who were killed that day. So let's talk to Linda. All right, Miss Linda Ambar, thank you to, for being on Patriots of the Core for the first time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Phil. First of all, can you tell me why did he join the Air Force? I believe he, he immigrated to the U.S. So what's his story before he joined? Well, Phil grew up in Venezuela. He was from France and Venezuela. His um, father is French. His mother is from Romania. And he came to the U.S. at the age of 12 speaking two words of English, Samatimas for sometimes and USA for USA. And when I met him at uh, when he was 21, he spoke English as well as you and I did. And I could never figure out that he wasn't from the U.S. He spoke 10 languages fluently. But at the age of 18, he joined the military to get his American citizenship. And he started as an airman with no stripes and ended up as um, an officer. So he spent 26 years in the military, uh, 16 years enlisted, 10 as an officer. And um, he ended up as an Air Force Academy professor. What was he teaching there? He was teaching French and Spanish um, because those were her, his first two native languages. And he w- had just finished his Ph.D. in foreign languages, um, and he deployed five days after he finished his Ph.D. Okay, so is this the deployment where he was killed? It is. Okay, all right. So we, 
Let's talk about that. Why did he deploy? And then, uh, I mean, was this a, a volunteer thing or did they, did they, did he have to? And then, uh, no. what, what, okay. He did not have to deploy. When he graduated um, with his PhD, he had been getting a PhD for three years, which meant that the Air Force paid him as like he was active duty and he went to school. And he said, how can I mentor cadets and my own children, four of whom are serving, if I have never deployed? And so he chose to deploy. He chose to go over as a trainer and advisor because he believed that through education, countries and nations can change. And when he was there, the person that assassinated him actually was somebody that he had eaten lunch with and practiced languages with, who had been in the military for almost as long as Phil had been in the military and knew almost as many languages as Phil knew. This was an, an Afghan military member who, whom Phil considered a friend. Was he there serving as a translator and an interpreter? No, he was there as, um, as a comm officer. But he was doing a lot with the um, with different languages. In fact, the last meeting he was there for was because the French was the French were setting up their clinic, and Phil was there as a calm person, but also with the languages. And what about the Afghan? What what was he doing there? What was his role? You know, I'm really not sure what he did, um, but he was considered a high-ranking Afghan military member. And while I could have looked up what he did, I. I've never been able to get past just knowing that he was somebody that Phil considered a friend who turned out to be an assassin. And that's what I call him. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know how many of those situations we've had. I know that one of my brother's teammates that happened to him about about 15 days before my little brother was killed as well. So when that happened, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so real. I remember having a really hard day thinking, man, my, that could be my little brother. And then. Of course, my brother wasn't killed that way that uh, that Phil was and that his teammate Danny was. But, man, that is just it's, – it's just well, – is it called um, – I always get it wrong. Is it called Green on Blue? It is called Green on Blue. And I tell you, I feel like it's the biggest travesty because if you can't trust a person in a NATO uniform, any one of whom you would lay down your life for, then who do you trust? And yeah. – in the situation where Phil and the others were killed that day, there were nine of them, it comes down to this. 23 Afghan military members left that room alive with only a ricochet bullet wound and a broken, broken leg by leaving the room. Not one of them stood up for any one of ours. And every one of our American people, and we were not segregated, Americans and Afghan military members, any one of our American military members would have stood for any one of them. And their NATO uniforms. And I think it becomes a double whammy when you don't know who to trust in anymore. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, and, and so as far as you know, Phil and his teammates never had any inclinations before of uh, any reasons why they couldn't trust them. No. And there's been a lot of supposition that way because there were a lot of things that had changed. And it felt like there was a lot of tension going on on the base. And there'd be times I'd be talking to Phil on the phone and um, the Internet would go down or he'd be walking across the base. He was afraid to even drive because you'd have to go outside of the wires um, to go over to the part where he worked. So he always walked so he could stay within the wires to stay safe. And there would be times when he you would hear things and the sirens would go off and whatnot. So I don't know 
how much of that was there, but I do know that they couldn't have their weapons fully engaged um, at that point. And now, you know, I don't know how I, I believe about that um, because it put one more layer of delay on our people being able to respond. Yeah, you know, I remember um, one of my brother's teammates when he came back from one of his deployments uh, showing me a lot of pictures, and he was actually living with some locals, some Afghans, and, and he was just, and he had a lot of pictures, and he was saying, you know, look at this. I, you think I, I couldn't trust these people, but yet I was living among them. I know he was he was quite nervous in, for in that situation the whole time he was there. I always said, you know. I kind of feel like, and this is horrible, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's always felt like they want us in their country for what we can bring, the resources that we can bring, but they don't have a value of life like we have a value of life, and it feels like they don't want us, they want what we bring, and because if they did want us, then why didn't, why isn't there that layer of protection, and then I keep wondering why our American government would be apologizing like crazy if one of our people went off and killed all, a bunch of theirs. Mm-hmm. Where's my apology? <laughs> I mean, not that words are going to make any difference, but it's just like it became a political statement of sorts. And I never wanted it to be a political statement. But I think one of the hardest things about the way Phil was killed was I lost faith in our own military as well as NATO, as well as my sense of security, um, my sense of security was rocked wow. to its very foundation. Yeah, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But to back up, will you explain? Will you just give us some the circumstances of of April twenty seventh, twenty eleven, and and what he was doing, and and what happened, how it all went down, based on what you know, anyway. So what I know was that Phil had a meeting, and the last time I had talked to Phil was Easter Sunday. Um, which was three days before he was killed, and um, actually four days before, but three days based on the American time. And he had called, and he said, um, I'll call you tomorrow. He didn't call the next day, and, you know, um, we couldn't always get through, so I didn't think a whole lot of it. The second day came and went, and I kind of sort of got a little bit, you know, I started thinking about why hasn't he called, because that was unusual for him not to call. And when the third day came and went, I kind of got cranky about it. And when his day planner came back, um, it showed that he had meetings, that this was a really big meeting, and that he'd been in convoy one day. So he had this great big meeting that he was doing. It was a theater-style room. And so the way that looked was it's just there were offices on different sides. Um, It was at um, the airport. There was the back room where he and... um, Four people were working. Four of them were working. Um, the contractor, the retired military person, the only female, um, a guy who had just got to the country, um, Kiba um, Estelle, who's on our uh, survivor council, and mm-hmm. Phil were all in that area working with on the comm stuff to get the comm stuff up and going. Then you had the pilots up in the front of the room, and they, they were working on just getting ready for the day, you know, weather, uh, you know, all the things that the pilots have to go through before they fly, coordination and whatnot. So when he came in, he was in his uniform, um, so he was able to get in. I will tell you, I don't know 
I've heard many, many versions of what I call the fairy tale, um, how long it took. And that's part of the hardest part for me right now is on this side of earth and heaven, I will never know exactly what happened. Yeah. I will tell you, Phil was one of the last to die. His gun is the only, his weapon is the only one missing. His trigger finger was almost shot off and he was shot too many times to count. Nobody knows why. But understand, it wasn't Americans all in one area of that big facility. They were all intermingled. So there's a mass exodus of Afghan military members. But I know that no trained military person, not every one of those in the room would stand there and be too scared to react. Yeah. Now, I get that he had the element of surprise. But Phil was not in the first part of the room. His weapon is missing. His trigger finger is almost off. I don't know the whole, I, I, it doesn't even matter because it doesn't change the facts. But part of the reason why I lost confidence in the military was they couldn't give me a straight answer. And I still don't have a straight answer. Um, from next door, two of our military members came over and engaged um, the shooter. One of them pursued him even after he had been shot. And I, to this day, think he should have a Medal of Honor um, because he lost his life trying to save other people in the building, and I believe that he did. Oh, and that was uh, Nathan Nylander. Nathan Eilander? Nylander. Nylander. Nathan Nylander. Okay. Eventually, I mean, he had enough time to write write things on the wall with his blood. He. Who, did, who was that? Nathan did? The, no, the shooter. Okay. And he was dead. He, he was found dead. Nathan did shoot the shooter. I don't, um, but to this day, nobody can say who shot the gunman. And I think that to me, there's some political posturing going on there to protect somebody, but I don't know. Um, because I think it'd be really a hard thing for every Afghan military member, knowing that within the realm, there, there are people that are traitors. Yeah. And if you, if you call out the person that did something, that you put your own family at risk. Yeah. So I, I do get that um, on one level. It's just, it's a tough, tough situation. The end result was your husband feel, and was it, so was it a total of 11 Americans killed? No, nine. Nine Americans, and how many assassins were there? Was it one? They say one. They say one. Okay. What do you think? I don't know, but I know that this guy had enough time. No weapon holds as many bullets as were shot that day. Wow. Each of those people were shot at least more than a handful, and Phil was shot too many times to count. So, what is that? You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of that's a lot of bullets. So, so based on that, it just seems to me that, and this is something I'd wondered and, and asked you, is Phil saw that assassin's face. He knew who was who it who was. was. Yeah, Linda, you. It sounds like there were multiple. Several days went by before you were notified. How many? And then not before I was notified. I was notified. Um, several hours went by. Um, okay. So at ten thirty in the morning, I saw it on the MSN ticker tape when I first went to work. Um, I got to school early because they coach children uh, before school, and the at six a.m. The ticker tape was um, seven confirmed dead at the Kabul airport shooting. At that point, it was seven. And 
the, and I thought, thank God my husband's not there. And I thought that because Phil was actually supposed to go to a place called Shindad and was diverted en route to a place called Kandahar. And my ignorance didn't, I didn't put together that Kandahar was part of the Kabul airport area. And so I wasn't even sure, you know, I, I just thought he wasn't there. And selfishly, I thought, thank God my husband's not there. And it's the first and only time in my life that I went next door to somebody, told my music teacher friend, I am so thankful my husband's not there. I went about my day in blissful ignorance. At 10.30 in the morning, um, a general went on television and said, today we lost one of our own. And because Phil was the only Air Force Academy professor that was deployed at the time, it was a nanosecond before they figured out who I was, who he was, where who I was. And they were able to... It was out everywhere, and the media was outside of my school, outside of my house, outside of the airport. When they notified me, 1.34 in the afternoon, I was teaching PE in Colorado Springs. I had 32 first graders in my classroom, my gym. The principal came to get me, and as I'm following him up the hallway, I didn't know why. I, was, I thought I was being let go, because that was the day they were letting um, all the teachers be let go. Um, I worked for school district that basically had declared bankruptcy um and so i had volunteered to be the one to be let go um just because i knew when phil came home we would pcs for four years before we came back to the academy and so as i'm following the principal at the school i'm thinking i'm losing my job when I, and when i see the media trucks i think crap i'm gonna have to give an interview um and be gracious and not tell everybody that i was the one that volunteered to be let go um, because that's not fair to other people. And as I hit the office, all the phones are ringing, all the naughty kids are running out of the office, and everybody's staring at me, and I think, crap, I'm losing my job. And everybody knows but me. And then when we duck past the secretaries and the nurses' station, I see the sea of blue uniforms, and I realized that it wasn't good. And... When I was notified, I was told that my kids knew my kids were being notified at the same time. So the upshot is two of my kids found out on Facebook. Um, one found out by a secondary friend telling them as I was being notified. Another found out the right way only because her phone was dead. And when she plugged it back in, she had 32 missed phone calls. And a bunch were from her brothers. A bunch were from her friends that had gone to the academy with her. And that made it really hard because not only are you finding out the worst thing in your life, you're having to live it publicly in real time. And you, the Air Force, and I, I just want to say this, the Air Force doesn't have a lot of practice with death like this. I don't think that they did this on purpose. I think that they've learned a lot from what happened with me. But they took me home dropped me off at my house. Nobody came in. Nobody stayed with me. I had media beating on my door. I lived in an apartment complex at this time. I had my phone ringing off the hook. And I can't even stand up. I can't even think straight. And the worst part for me is the way my kids found out. And I can't take that back. I never have that moment back. And that's, you know, I'm a big girl, but my kids were still kids. Um, to me, they're still kids. <laughs> yeah. Did any of them live at home? No. Okay. Um, my youngest two were in college at the time. 
um, three were already in the military. And my youngest was 18. My oldest was 28. My youngest, who had just turned 18 just before this happened, was the youngest cadet ever to graduate from the academy. And um, he was the one closest to his father. And that's, I think, it was at the time and still sometimes, and one of the reasons why I'm proudest of some of the work I've done since then, it felt like the Air Force is really good at funerals and really good at burials. But after that, we're horrible. We have, and even in a notification that went so badly, um, they froze my, they froze my ID card by accidentally miscoding Phil's death. So I had to talk my way onto my husband's funeral, um, talk my way onto the base. And one of the things you don't want to have to do the day after the funeral or the day of the funeral is have to go get a new ID card. And they assigned me a they called them flow at the time, but they're far as now the casualty assistance person, you know, after it's over the, uh-huh. um, somebody that was in trouble for sexual misconduct and he was never available by phone or email. And the only time that he ever wanted to be involved was when high ranking people were coming to brief me. And that's not what we should be doing with our families. No. Did any of those officers assigned even know Phil? They did. All of they them did. did. Okay. And I will tell you, I have forgiven all of them. And the reason why is because it takes real estate in my heart. Um, I don't think that any of it was done intentionally. But I do think that because we didn't have the practice, a lot was done poorly or or not with a lot of thought. Linda, when, when we were in, in D.C. last month for our... Survivor Advocacy Advocacy Council meeting, um, we were sitting in that room with all the, you know, really the top leaders of the Air Force and General Goldfein, and and they had asked me to kick it off, and uh, so I did, and and it's amazing, you know, I shared I shared my experience, which was completely opposite of yours, and mine happened a year and a half before yours. I mean, there were definitely, I guess, some things that could have been improved, but I, I really had no complaints. It, I had I had a suggestion for them and I shared that. But then when you spoke, I was almost like my jaw on the ground. I could not believe, and I know you could have taken you could have taken so much more time if you if it was allowed if we had it to explain more. There was a lot that you couldn't get to, but I was blown away at the what you've had to, to deal with. What else you had, General Goldfein, in everyone else's ear? I know you talked to him afterwards. What else are some challenges that you faced? Yeah, you talked about your assets. You, you, you couldn't. You had no money. You couldn't get your ba- into your bank account. I think you had forty dollars cash. You had to borrow I money. I mean, what are some uh, other things you had to deal with? Well, so that was probably my own stupidity. I, I am an old first off before Phil deployed. When it came time for the spouses to be briefed on, um, you know, pre-deployment stuff, you know, the Air Force Academy basically took the approach that. You know what? I'd been a military wife for 26 years. I'd been through deployments. I was a key spouse. There was really no reason for me to go through this briefing. Well, that's all well and good. But then when your husband's killed, what do you have? Um, So the day he was killed, Phil had a second life insurance policy that he got right before he um, deployed. And the premium was due on it. And so I actually called USAA and told them that Phil had just been killed, and I wasn't sure what to do. And then I went to Dover the next day, 
um, I tried to use my credit card um, to buy water and I probably water and. But Linda, uh, first of all, how did you get to Dover? Did I know the Air Force typically they they pay for a few family members to get there? Did they fly you commercially? Oh, right. So the Air Force did a really great job on this because four of my kids are military. And at the time, two people were entitled for that full flight benefit. They actually flew uh, my daughter-in-law and my one son that wasn't military. And all four military members um, were put on orders and sent. So they they did a great job that way. I have no complaints with that. Um, So we get to Texas and I try to buy water and a snack or something. And my credit cards declined. And I was like, why is it declined? But I took out another one and tried it. And they were like, ma'am, this one's bad, too. My ATM card wouldn't work. The machine kept it. And what happened was, um, by my notifying the bank, although Colorado is a no-probate state, and I had a will stating that everything came to me in the advent of Phil's death by law, that's all well and good. But you have to have a death certificate. You have to, have, and as you know, when you're killed overseas, it doesn't look the same. It's a form 1300, um, and that comes later. So, even though my teaching salary was dumped into the account, um, and both of our names were on it, and it was a joint account, right before he left, we had set it up online so that we had one online username one online password. That's well and good until the person who sets it up is killed. And then I couldn't access anything. Um, If we had done it where we had two usernames, and even if we used the same password, my bank account would not have been frozen. So I had no assets for almost two weeks. Um, I had $40 in my purse, and I didn't. I wasn't real sure how it was going to work in terms of who paid what at Dover. I knew that they would reimburse me, but I wasn't sure the process of how that worked. And again, how who has practice with that? Mm-hmm. And so um, I was thankful that my active duty children were there because they were able to, you know, pay for the meals and things like that. Well, Linda, how do you think things ended? At the, I, mean, I know it's not final, but how did they? How did they? How did you leave things in D.C. when we were there last month? I have hope. I have a lot of hope. Um, one of the reasons why I walked away from teaching school, and I love teaching PE. I was actually the popular teacher in my school. You know who who isn't popular when you're a PE teacher and they know you love them and you coach and whatnot. Um, I walked away because somebody needs to be internal to the system to make a difference. And if not me, whom? And it's the way that I'm honoring and remembering and making it so other people don't go through some of the things I went through. And with, I really love General Goldstein. I feel like his heart is there. I felt like his heart has been there um, ever since I met him. And I was selected as a Gold Star um, voice for our Gold Star video to train about the ID cards. When he stood up, the one... A couple of years ago, um, where we went to Florida, that was the first survivor council. And then what we did in D.C., every single time I sit down with him, I feel like things are changing. And it's not going to change overnight. But small steps can equal a really big change. It'll take time. And, and, and 
nonstop, not just from the Air Force, but people like you as well. And hopefully our, our, our council is helping with that. Um, I what, want to be part of the solution. Yeah, and you already have been. I think you I mean you've definitely taken action and haven't sat back and become a victim. And I can, you're, I, there's no way that you're a victim. I mean, based on just even the life you live now. What's happened since? How have you dealt with Phil's death? Well, initially, I will tell you, five days after he was buried, I got up and went back to work. And that gave me nine hours a day where I felt semi normal and where my focus wasn't on myself, but it was on the youth I was working with. It was on something besides just how bad I felt. The other thing I did is I ran because people wanted me to talk about how I felt and I couldn't do it. I, um, everything was so public that the last thing I wanted to do was talk. And so I started to write and I wrote a lot of blogs and I shared them on Facebook because at the time I had 26 friends and those, those 26 friends, five were my children. One was my mom, you know, a couple were my aunts, a few people I worked with. And pretty soon those blogs kept getting shared and it turned out ended up being a book. And that book um, was something that I never wanted to make money off of Phil's death. And so I look for ways to give back the proceeds of that book. And it's never going to be a lot of proceeds. And I've done that through TAPS running events. And basically I give the proceeds every few years to TAPS um, through the running events um, because they make such a difference for other people, the Tragedy Assistance Program. And, the and TAPS part, is not a specific branch of the military, right? It's, it's it branch. is not. It's any branch, anybody that's been killed in action, line of duty, um, suicide, um, even just dying um, within the military realms. And it provides resources for the entire family and also for your um, siblings, moms and dads, um, and even your battle buddies. And so I did that. Um, so TAPS became an important part of my advocacy and I did that through running and writing and then speaking through different running events. And the second part of that was, you know, I, I decided to go back to school and get a fourth master's degree in something called uh, military resiliency counseling and something called thanatology, which is the study of basically death. You know, um, how people grieve, why people die by suicide. Um, did you say thanatology? Thanatology, T-H-A-N, uh, thanatology. Wow, that is a new word to me. Death ethics and things like that because it helped me to understand, it helped me to understand way that, ways that people grieve, what people need in that process, um, how, how people can change. It gave me a platform to understand something called positive trauma growth, which it, it is about resiliency, but it's also about choices. We all have choices when the worst happens. And initially, you're breathing through it one second at a time, one minute at a time, one hour, one day, um, one mile, one marathon at a time. A marathon is 26.2 miles. I've run almost 200 of them. And there's never been one that I haven't thought that I haven't wanted to quit or that I haven't known it's going to hurt more tomorrow and more the next day. But I also know that if I look only at the step ahead of me, I might fall, I might get lost, I might need to rest, I might need to lean on a friend, but I can get to that finish line. And grief is a lot like that. Um, so when you get through that initial fog of grieving, um, 
where every second, every day you're, you're thinking about it to the point where even though you know it hurts, you can get there. You can do this. You can find a way. You can be proud of yourself. You can get through this. And that's that positive trauma growth mentality. And and two years after Phil died, I was running the Boston Marathon to honor Phil. And I was at the 26-mile mark. I had one stoplight to finish, uh, to finish the race when the first bomb went off. And the second one followed really quickly. I ran for my life, and I will tell you, I was cowering underneath a table in the Dunkin' Donuts store. I don't remember how I got there, but it was at that moment when I realized I can't let fear control me anymore. I've got to figure out a way to face my fears and to take back my life and to learn to thrive versus just survive. And a lot of my advocacy and a lot of my own personal journey of running marathons in all seven continents has been about, and even me being here in Japan, has been about me facing my fears. And it's been about me living a full life because I know that Phil would not want me to give up living. And I, and sort of in a warped way, I feel like I have to live really well because he didn't get a chance to live his life as fully as anybody could have expected him to be able to live. How old was Phil when he was killed? He was barely 44. He had just turned 44 April 4th. And Linda, had you were you a marathon runner before his death? I was, but not to the extent that I became after his death. When he died, I had run, um, I think, 55 marathons or somewhere really close to that. And I have run really close to 200. Um, it would have been 200 <laughs> This year, except for um, with the COVID virus, uh, who knows when I'll be able to run races again. So what are your plans? It sounds like you're you're still waiting on one continent to get all seven marathons. I am. Is that right? Um, the Antarctica Marathon, and I am slated to go in 2021. It's been a five-year waiting list. And my second book is going to be about taking back my life one step at a time and facing my fears. And so i got to get it. <laughs> So what is the outlook on that book? Do you have a release date? I haven't started it yet. Um, okay. I want to finish. I want to finish the seventh marathon. It's what I plan to do in retirement, which is coming faster than uh, most people think. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of old, but not that old. And um, I, my my goal is to spend my retirement um, the first year writing it. Well, that'd be great. That and that's a few great. years away. Well, Linda, what about specifically with dealing with the loss of your husband, a father, and then just the difficult circumstances that you've, what you've had to deal with since his death. Running has kind of helped, has helped you big time. What, yes. anything else have you been doing? What about any other physical activity or any other exercises mentally that you've started uh, so doing to help? I would say the first thing that I did is I fell into my faith and well, spiritual resiliency doesn't have to include a church faith. Mine certainly did. And it gave me hope for what lies ahead. And it grounded me because from the beginning of time, there's been evil things that people don't understand. So church faith does play into my journey forward. The second thing, you know, with grief, you don't sleep well. And one of the things I always tell people, I'm not a pretzel, but I started doing yoga, yoga for runners. And the reason why is because it helps you to shut things off and it helps you to relax your muscles so that you can sleep. And I do 
still consistently do that at least six days a week. I would say the third thing is when things are bad, and I've done this from the very start, I get outside. When you're outside, it gets rid of your options, and it kind of resets your batteries a little bit so that you're not surrounded by all the pictures and all the mementos. You're actually outside. You're walking. um, You get a chance to maybe you do cry, and maybe you do you know, run really hard and get really tired, but you get a chance to come back with a new mindset when you're inside. I agree. So those three things, faith, yoga for runners, and outside. Yeah. Well, and running, and running too. And run, Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree with all that. Of course, I've done only a little bit of yoga, but... Um, I hate yoga, but you know what? It's good for you. <laughs> it's hard. It is, it hard. is hard. Let's see. What, what else, Linda, would you like to say about... Uh, well, what are you doing... In Japan, I know you got, you got your you got your fourth masters, but what are you specifically doing over there now? So I work for the Air Force. Um, I'm in something called the Community Support Coordinator Rule, which means I work with all the helping agencies to basically meet the needs of the people. So we look at all the trends within the military. So the idea is you want to boost the positive trends and decrease the negative trends. So like DUIs, um, domestic assaults. Um, any of that. Um, and then to give people coping skills. And I do that a little bit differently than most people in the Air Force. I use something called an intentional storytelling approach. So you take those resiliency skills that are so important um, for coping and you weave them into the stories, that uh, into people's stories. And everybody's story is different. And not all of them are big body slams like mine. Some of them are a series of small setbacks that put people on their knees. And I think that we're seeing that here with the virus um, restrictions. And you basically give them the skills within the story so that people start thinking about how do I utilize it? Um, Oh, gosh, um, if she utilized it in this strategy this way, maybe I can utilize it. And then you partner them with a helping agency like mental health or the chaplain to deal with what do you do if somebody's going through something really hard? How do you support them? Because it's really hard to support somebody going through a major life crisis um, or mental health. You know, um, what kind of strategies could you utilize if, you know, you constantly fall into the uh, fall into a role that you don't want to fall into, like punching holes in the wall, per se. And then by working with all the helping agencies you get a lot of buy-in and you get a lot of people that are investing in it. I've taken that same approach to our spouses and to our youth also, because I feel like you can't just concentrate in the military member. The spouses see the behavior changes long before the military sees the behavior changes um, when it comes to downward spiraling. And during the COVID restriction times, I've been writing for uh, um, the spouses and the school newsletters about strategies that parents and youth can use to deal with their grief over the loss of the way the school year was supposed to go or sports or dealing with homeschooling when you never thought you were going to have to deal with homeschooling, um, all of that. One last question that I have, Linda, is you said in a Stars and Stripes interview that you agree that developing close relationships with the Afghans is key to imparting change in the country. But the question begs to be asked, do they really want to change? What do you think? Like 
the rest of the country, I've been watching the headlines um, and the broker deals um, with the Afghans. I don't even know if I would say I'm cautiously hopeful. Um, I wouldn't say I was a pessimist. I'm neutral until it's proven to me that that's what they really want. It's hard for me to fathom. I think it's time for them to take more responsibility for their country. And I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it does. Um, and But I will tell you, I would like for that to happen with the Afghan people. I think that one of the things he's about Field also deploying was he always felt like if our country was the same way the Afghan country was towards women and children, he would hope that somebody would come up and and make a difference, you know, in our country for my, myself and for my daughter, because um, he never wanted that for them. Yeah. So I will tell you, I have forgiven Phil's assassin. I have high hopes for Afghan people, but maybe I, I, I wouldn't even suppose, wouldn't even have the supposition to say what I think in terms of success. I agree with you 100%. You want to be, you want to be, um, you know, you don't want to be a pessimist, but man, history, long, long history, it's kind of hard to, kind of hard to change based on thousands of years of acting one way. It is. What else, Linda? Anything else you'd like to share with us? You know, I will say this. Um, Osama bin Laden was killed the day before Phil, Phil was, Phil was buried. And my daughter, when asked on television, um, if we were happy, if that represented a victory for our family, she said no. Um, it was a moral victory for the people, but we can't rejoice in the loss of life of anybody. And I feel that way towards the military members that are lost on the Afghan side, too. It's not just American families losing people. It's also Afghan soldiers being lost, too. And I think in, the, in a perfect world, we'd have peace. We would have um, everybody committed to the same goals and um, ideations. But I also don't think that that's necessarily a realistic outcome. And so as American people, I am proud of what our flag stands for. I know that Phil loved our country. And I know that he loved all the freedoms and opportunities given to him by his American citizenship. And that was a key motivator for him. And, you know, very few people can say that they chose our country, got their citizenship, and loved the country so much that they would have given every last measure and every last day they had, and he was able to do that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on Patriot to the Core. I loved it. Thank you for having me. So my guest today was Miss Linda Ambard. You can find out more about her and the references from the podcast in the show notes at thadforrester.com forward slash Linda dash Ambard. If you would like to support the podcast, the greatest thing you can do is share it with a friend or someone that you know. You can also write a review in Apple Podcast or Stitcher or anywhere it will let you write reviews. But Apple Podcasts would definitely be a huge help if you would rate it and review the podcast. You can also support by going to patreon.com forward slash patriot to the core and you can be a Patreon. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
Patreon is just someone who supports the cause financially. I have three plans to choose from, $2, $5, and $10 per month. So if you would like to do that, then head on over there and there's a link there's a link in the show notes or on the on my website where you can go directly there and see what the perks are for being a Patreon. And lastly, what guests do you want to hear on the show? If you ever wonder how I select my guest, I have a lot of a lot of criteria, I guess, but the main thing would be it's people who are patriots to their country, to their fellow man. So these are people who serve and do great things. So most of them we know are military, but not all of them are. I do have a list of people, a huge list, and many of them we've already interviewed. You know, I've got 70-something episodes now. But there's, there's some that I used to want to talk to and I no longer care to speak with. Some of them, based on their communication with me, I'm just turned off and not interested. And some of them just... You know, will not talk with me. Maybe I'm, my podcast is too small or I just can't get through to them. I've been trying to get with Gary Sinise for a long time and I just cannot get through, but I'm going to. I'm working that with multiple angles and the people that I've talked to there are saying, no, not yet. That's what I really want because I read his book, Grateful American. Awesome book. Highly recommend it. There's other people. Uh, the one, I'm just going to share some of the ones that most people would know. I really want to talk to Drew Brees. I've been impressed with him. I, shoot, I wanted to talk to him a few years ago when I, when I found out about his foundation, all the great work that he does, and there, not just in the New Orleans area, but he's done a lot for that city. I saw him on Bear Grylls a few years ago. It was great. I just read Drew Brees' book called Coming Back Stronger. I was at the doctor because I had to have Achilles surgery, you know, feeling a little bit down because I can't do anything right now. I can't walk, and I want to get back to 100% where I can play tennis and play sports again. And there I was, I saw Drew Brees' book in there in his jersey because he used that same doctor as well. So I read his book, Coming Back Stronger, and I'm trying to get him on the show. Someone else I really want to get on the show was Glenn Coffey. If someone can help me there, Glenn Coffey was a running back at Alabama. Ended up getting drafted. He played for the 49ers, and he ended up joining the Army and getting deployed. He wrote a book with his dad, and I think he, he is a trainer or coach at the University of Alabama now, but I have not gotten any response from him yet, and I've tried for a few years. One that you may not know about is Mike Durant. If you know him from the movie Black Hawk Down, he was the the pilot who was taken captive, and I actually did interview him. I met him, got his car, interviewed him a few years ago. Great podcast interview, and guess what? It didn't record, and I just felt like such a loser. And I finally contacted him when I exhausted everything, making sure there was nothing, no backup file somewhere. And I told him it didn't record. I'd love to do it again. So, but Mike Durant was one I wanted since almost day one of starting this podcast. And I hated that I screwed that one up back in about 2017. So if you have any other recommendations, please send them my way. I have a lot more people on the list. Many of them uh, you will not know. They're not household names, but some of them still are. Regardless, they have great stories, and if if I can get it out of them, some of these guys don't want to talk. That's their prerogative, of course. But thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support.